Take your Bibles, please, or devices, wherever you have a Bible. And turn, please, to 1 John in chapter 4. 1 John, please, in chapter 4. I'm going to read a long section of Scripture from verses 13 through 21. Not too long. We read long passages of Scripture. But I'll only have opportunity um, to consider at best verses 13, 14, and the first part of verse 16. This is the passage that actually gets its introduction in verse 12, where the apostle speaks of God abiding in us and his love being perfected in us. And this first number of verses, verses 13, 14, 15, a bit of 16, talks to us about God abiding in us and us in him. And then from there on out, God's love being perfected in us. And so this will occupy us for at least another week. You found that, I trust now, so let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we come to your word. Um, it is a lamp and a light. So we pray that you would enable us to see Jesus. That's our heart's desire. That's our heart's need. So please fill us in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So the love that God has I'm sorry, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has nothing to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. George Bernard Shaw a playwright, among other things, was known for his um, discussions about the English language, often about spelling. In fact, uh, it's purported that he was doing a radio show once, and uh, in doing this show, he made this statement. He says that there are two words in the English language that begin with the shh sound, but aren't spelled with S-H. That's all he said. He went on to something else. Received a note in the mail from a person who had been listening, and that, that person said, no, you're wrong. There's only one word that begins with the sh sound, but isn't spelled S-H, and it's the word sugar. You can hear it, S-U-G-A-R, sh, sugar. George Bernard Shaw wrote back with just this question. Are you Sure. without the humor 
That's John's question. Are you sure? You see, he takes this up with profound seriousness because assurance of our salvation is profound. Necessary, important to us for, for our lives. The way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it is like this. He said, this infallible assurance is not so essential to faith that a true believer may not have doubts and conflicts about it, possibly wait some time for it, grow into it. But since the Spirit enables believers to know the things which are freely given to them by God, every believer may come to a full assurance of salvation by the ordinary working of the Spirit without unusual revelation. And here's this, listen. He says, therefore, it is every believer's duty to establish the certainty of his calling and election so that his heart may be filled with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, with love and thankfulness to God, and with strength and cheerfulness of obedience. See, here's the great benefit, you see, of, of, of really knowing, being sure. It's possible, and we've talked about this, so I won't go into these details, but it's possible for some simply to find it more difficult than others to have this assurance in all kinds of circumstances, situation, personality can be a part of that. But, but that doesn't... That doesn't keep us, shouldn't keep us from seeking deeply to be certain that we really really know that we belong to God, that we are his, because there's great benefit, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, love, thankfulness to God, and a a strength for obedience, you see. Because when when we're challenged to follow Christ, and we're not certain that we really do belong to him, then our resolve is weakened, you see. So to be certain means that when we face challenges, then we can obey because we really know that we belong to him. Certainly in the days in which we live, right? Political unrest, social upheavals. All that has been true for us in these last months because of COVID, whether Economic uncertainties or frailty of health, difficulties because of isolation, all of that. This is the time, you see, we deeply need to be assured of our salvation. Peter, Peter speaks of real Christian life in, the, in his first chapter of his first epistle. And again, this passage, you know, 1 Peter chapter, three, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. That's what we need to be certain about. And then he says, in this you rejoice, Though, for, though now for a little while, if necessary, you get the sense that he's saying it is necessary. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's, it's that living by faith. Yes, I know that I belong to him, and all that's true in him is true for me. Therefore, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of the difficulties, you see, these trials, fiery trials, uh, fiery fits, doesn't it? You can feel it. Still, still, we can, and I wouldn't even say must, but we still can be filled with joy. That's it. So I was thinking a thought that I often think before I preach, while I'm preparing, and when it's done, I think this were the last sermon I were to preach. What I have said, what I wanted, needed to say, if this is the last sermon you'd ever hear, would you hear what you need to hear? Last week, um, Chad borrowed my Martin Lloyd-Jones volume on 1 John chapter 4. He has one like this on every chapter. You think I preach long, ploddingly. But Lloyd-Jones was a mentor, really, is though dead to many a preacher, many a reformed preacher particularly. I'm going to read you a very long quote, like two pages, three pages maybe. I was going to do it at the end right before the communion table, but I'm going to do it now. It takes about four minutes. I think I timed it. It might be longer if I pause too much. I want to do it early so you catch my drift. I believe he preached this sermon in 1949. Can't be certain, but I tried to find where he had preached this one. Begins with this text, hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That's the text for today. That wasn't written in 1949, by the way. That was written between 75 and 95. Um, by the Apostle John. He writes this in 1949. He says, This was written by the Apostle of Jesus Christ to men and to women in a very troubled and perplexing world towards the end of the first century. The world then was a difficult place, just as it is today, full of troubles and contradictions, full of confusion. It's always been like that. There have been periods of comparative peace, but the world has always been a hard trying place. And in a sense, we can never truly understand the message of the Bible unless we realize that the various books of the Bible were written in a world like that. Our danger in every generation is to think of our immediate perplexities as being quite exceptional, yet any reading of biography or history should clear our minds of any such idea, for we find that men and women have always regarded their particular era as unusual and particularly difficult. Thus, we must always bear in mind as a kind of background for our consideration. So here, as we've seen, is an old man writing just before he leaves the world. That's John. And, and, and gives final word of advice to men and women who will go on living after his departure. He's concerned about them. He's vitally interested. He wants to help them. And what does he write to them? He does not attempt any evaluation of the political situation. 
nor does he deliver a number of pompous generalities and vague and pious hopes and aspirations. Lloyd-Jones would think there's a time for that, but just not a sermon. There is, in a sense, no reference to the political or international situation. Rather, he writes to them individually and directly. He does say something about the world, but what he says about it is, we know that we're of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So according to this man, the question is, what are we going, what are we going to do in such a world? What can be done for us? What is important for us? Now it seems to me, he says, that we are pre precisely in that situation. We are all aware of the world in which we live and its condition and its trouble. But the question is, what is the Christian church to say in the midst of all this? What's the message to Christian people at this point? And if we want to be true to the New Testament, we must do exactly what it does. We all have our opinions, and I suppose we're ready to argue for our opinion. And yet surely this century should have taught us that we waste a good deal of time. 1949, by the way. We waste a good deal of time in our prophecies and forebodings concerning the future. We know so little, and our prognostications are almost invariably wrong. Surely, therefore, the great thing for us is rather to view all these things in light of the teaching of the scriptures themselves. And I understand the teaching of the Bible. It comes to this. Whatever, that whatever people may say and whatever may be held out as hope for us, this world is a place of sin. And this has been so throughout the centuries. Look at the long history that is recorded in the Bible. The world has been a place of woe and a place of warfare, misery, unhappiness, and wretchedness. And in spite of all of this, we're told in the last century as to how different the world was going to be in the 20th century. We've lived to see that world is still, that world is still to come. And therefore, it seems to me to be utterly unchristian and completely contradictory to the message of Scripture to attempt to put forward solutions which are somehow or another going to put this world right because the whole message of the Bible is to show that it can't happen. The essence of wisdom, according to Scripture, is that we should make certain that we're not involved in the perdition of this world which is coming, but rather that we should be saved out of it and should be reconciled to God. Thus it seems that the whole principle of Christian preaching is not to express vague, general, contradictory ideas of what should happen. Let us rather come to something of which we're certain. And what we're certain of is this, that the whole world is to be judged by God and that no one can escape him. And there is but one way to be reconciled to God, and that is in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we need to be delivered out of this world. We know that the whole world is passing away. It's not for me to try to predict what the next year will hold for all of us. We don't know, but what I do know is that if I am right with God in Christ, I can face whatever happens. And I can say with great, the great apostle, that I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we say that? Are we in that position? That's the question. That's the theme, as we have it, of this particular section of 1 John. The knowledge of God, that is, that's the thing, says John that we may know that we dwell in him and he in, he in us. And that's the question. Are we sure? If I can impress anything upon you today, if you could hear anything at all today, 
it would be that you can be sure that God lives in you and that you live in him. Now, just so that I can earn my keep and not just preach someone else's sermon. That's how John presents it, isn't it, in verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He says, we can know this. We, we know by this, there's something by which we can know that if you think of this. I mean, John lays out for us all kinds of ways to think of our salvation. It's all summed up in the word eternal life, of course, but he talks about knowing God. He talks about passing from life to death, or death to life. But here, this is so profound. I mean, one scholar, and scholars aren't known for their emotion, but one scholar says, when I, when I, when I write these words in this commentary, I, I feel as if I must take off my shoes. And, and I must say, from the, from the very beginning, that... that all I can do is declare this to you. To, to explain it might take something even from it. But, but just that God lives in us and we live in him. He abides in us. He stays with us and in us. Can you think about that? What it means to be a Christian is that God abides in you and you in him. He lives in us. We live in him. When, when we live in him, we think of the great blessings that are ours because we're in him. The scripture uses this expression often, in Christ. We're in Christ. We're in God. So that all that Christ has gained is ours. Be because we're in him. Forgiveness of sins. Really. Why? Because we've been united to Christ. And so when he died, we died. When he rose, he rose. When he ascended, we were with him. We are in him, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, his righteousness to us, adoption, we belong in the family of God. This inheritance that I read a moment ago from Peter, this inheritance, it really is ours. Don't forget that ever. Whatever you see on TV, don't ever forget that you have an inheritance, eternal life, the great blessing from God, and nothing can take that away from you. You watch TV when you read the papers. You don't read papers anymore. When you read your news feeds. Read and watch and listen knowing what's really true. So Jude says, how do we explain all that goes on? Well, we try and we do our best and we should do our best. There's people who are good at that sort of thing. Preachers, not usually. But good at that sort of thing. So Fine. But never let any of that take this away. That God dwells in you and you in him. You dwell in him. That's all these blessings are yours. Deed, eternal life, he'll keep you. We're in him, he in us. And he's in us, you see, to, to keep us and to protect us to fill us, to satisfy us, to discipline us, to transform us, to sanctify us, right? to make us holy so that we can really know joy because there's no real joy without holiness. And so, so 
He's working in us at all times. So, so John says, by this we know that this is true. So how do we know it? And he says, we know it because he's given to us his spirit. Now that shouldn't surprise us because it's the Holy Spirit, uh, the Apostle Paul says, who witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. And so we, we, we know that he lives in us, abides in us, and we live in him because he's given to us his spirit. And his spirit testifies to us that that is true. Now, think for a moment about the work of the Holy Spirit. We know, and we've been through this so many times, but we know from John's gospel, not first John the epistle, but the gospel that he wrote, that John, when speaking of Jesus, most particularly on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and spoke, Jesus did, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in John chapter 14, verse 25, we have these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. That was a promise, in one sense to all of us, but most directly to these apostles, so that they would have the truth and be able to testify to it, relay it to, to us. Verse 26 of chapter 15, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. So, so he'll bear witness, and, and, and you also will, will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So they'll know that. And then what's he going to do, this Holy Spirit? Verse 12 of chapter 16, I've said many things to you, Jesus says, um, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he'll speak. and will declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he says, now, you know that God abides in you and you in him because he's given you his spirit. Because you see, when the spirit comes, he convinces you of the truth about Jesus. And the truth about Jesus is, notice what they testify to in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. See, the Spirit came to them and convinced them of all the things true about Jesus. Now, they had been with him. They had, they had seen him. How does he put it in his opening verses? That which we, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testified to it, proclaimed to you. And so you see, they knew. And, and when the Spirit came on that great day of Pentecost, they, 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 they really saw it. It's, it's, it's sort of bells and whistles went off, so much so that, that the people who were watching them thought they were drunk because they were so filled with joy and so declaring the praises of God. And, and here they were, you see. They, they knew it. And they knew that they knew it. And nothing could dissuade them from it, not persecution. So John says, we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That expression, Savior of the world, he's the Savior, he's the rescuer. You see, the image we often have in our mind, it's not a bad one, the image we have in our mind is, is of a drowning person. 
and, and being rescued. And so this life preserver comes and rescues that person. And, and yes, but, but the real situation with us is that we're drowning. And when the life preserver comes, we ignore it because we don't really think we need it. He's such a rescuer that what happens, the spirit of God comes to us and he takes that life preserver and he puts it over us and he drags us to the boat and then we're in the boat and we say, I'm saved. I, I could have drowned out there. <laughs> but see, that's the work of the spirit. That's why you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, because not only was it night out, but it was night in. That is, he was in darkness. Jesus said, you can't see it. No one can see the kingdom of God. No one can behold the kingdom of God unless he or she has been born from above, has been born again. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit, you see. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it. Remember the illustration that Jesus gave about all this was that he, he saw a man who had been born blind and he gave the man sight. Why? So that the man could give the testimony of every believer, which is, I once was blind, but now I see. And he did it. Saved me. I can see it. The work of the Spirit. I can, I can now see it. So, so John says, by this we know we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his Spirit. Because, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And he's the Savior of the world. That doesn't at all mean that everyone in the world is saved or will be saved. In fact, the only other time that little expression, Savior of the world, is used like that is back in John chapter 4. And you know this passage. It's a passage of Jesus uh, having visited with this Samaritan uh, woman by this well. And you remember after Jesus reveals himself to her, she runs off and tells the city, uh, many Samaritans come back. This is verse 39 of John 4. Many Samaritans uh, from the town uh, believed in him because uh, of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we heard for ourselves. We know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Meaning, it's not just for Israelites. We're Samaritans, and we're saved too. This is a local thing. It's a, it's a global thing. It's an all-over-the-world thing, an every-generation thing. He's the Savior, you see, of the world, which is, please indulge me, epiphany. This is the first Sunday after the epiphany. This is epiphany. Ask the question, who is he? And, and the answer is the Savior of the world. And so, so, so what's the key passage of Epiphany? Any good Episcopalians out there? The, the, the key passage of Epiphany is the wise men coming. And the wise men come, kings to worship the king. Psalm 72 is the psalm for the day of Epiphany. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, these wise men come from outside 
of Israel to worship him. It's the message. He's the savior of the world. John says, that's what we knew. That's what we testified to. And that's what you believed. And the reason you could believe it was because the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And because the Holy Spirit has been given to you, you can be sure that even though you haven't seen him, he abides in you and you in him. You can know that. The Holy Spirit bears witness. He bears witness how, well, probably in many ways, but at least by this, by testifying to the truth of Jesus, by enabling us to believe it, we hear it and we believe it and we say yes. And then this final point, the beginning of verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See, this is, this is the story of, of the Christian life, you see. The story of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit comes, gives new life. The gospel is presented. They could be happening simultaneously. This isn't a temporal thing. We're just talking the logic of it. Spirit comes, gives new life. Hear the gospel. Believe it. Thus, be assured you live in God and God lives in you, that you abide, that you're together that all the blessings of Christ are yours, that God is with you in every circumstance, in every situation. And then how do we live? We live knowing and believing. Um, the New International Version says, knowing and relying upon, believing, relying upon the love of God. Last week, Chad was preaching, and he talked about being children of God and knowing that God loves us, you see. When a daisy Christians, he loves me, loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. It's easy to be, right? It's easy to be that way when things are going well. It's easy to say God loves me. When things are difficult, it's easy to wonder about that. Things are difficult now. It's easy to wonder about that. Don't wonder about that. You have the Holy Spirit. You know you have the Holy Spirit because you believe. You believe that which is true about Jesus. You know that he's your savior. The savior of the world is your savior. Why? Because you know what he's done. You know that when he died, you died and sins are forgiven, you see. You know that when he rose, he rose. You rose to newness of life so you could live this out. And now what do you rely upon? What do you, what do you know you rely upon the love of God. That he will do for you that which is best. And that nothing. How was it in Romans 8 that I read when I read you that long quote from Lloyd-Jones? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The apostle saying, you rely upon the love, the love of God through every 
difficulty? To what do you appeal? You appeal to the love of God in Christ Jesus. You, 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 you appeal to his loving kindness, to the covenant that he made in Jesus to come and to help you, and to keep you, and to sustain you. Even though, for his sake, we're being killed all the day long. Next time you're witnessing to someone and sharing the gospel, you might want to tell them this, that you're inviting them into a life where they're regarded by the world as sheep to be slaughtered. But that as they rely upon the love of God, they'll find joy, more joy than they've ever known. Because he really does that which is best for us and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Our daughter Sarah, who lives in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> has a severe milk allergy. She has anaphylaxis to milk protein, which means she'll die. And uh, she gets it. And so everyone's very careful in her house. So if, when you visit Sarah, there are no milk products anywhere which is fine, she does well, her kids do well, except Zeke, her second born, loves pizza. Being the type of grandfather that I am and Karen, the type of grandmother that she is, when we visit, we promise Zeke pizza. Every grandparent knows that trick. So there was a day we were visiting them, and Zeke was just really happy. He was walking around the house really happy in the morning, and, and uh, Sarah said, why are you so happy? He said, because we're having pizza for lunch. She says, well, why are you so happy now? You, you, you don't have it yet. He said, yeah, but Pop said so. We rely upon the love of God. He said so. He said, I won't ever leave you. I won't ever forsake you. Even Jesus, as he went to the cross, did so with joy. Why? Because he knew that. Even in the days in which we live, there's joy. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I know that. Because he said so. Here's how he said it. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus was with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare? We declare that he's the savior of the world. 
we declare he is my savior. And when quizzed, how do you know that? Well, he's given me his spirit. So, well, I couldn't know it without his spirit. My sin would have kept me from it, but, but, but he gave me new life so that I could know it. And I could have joy. Why? Because he said, he would never leave me, forsake me, that all that is mine in Christ is mine. Let's pray. Father, give you thanks. Please work that into us, Holy Spirit. With all that could be said about what's happening, may this be said in the midst of it. May we know it. May we live upon it. May we, may we rely upon the love of God. May we know it. And you through him love us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.